Hey friends, before we dive into the show, I've got something for you. Fellow doctors, entrepreneurs, professionals, busy people in general. Sometimes getting a meal in is difficult and we miss it. It happens, but we need to fuel our body with what it needs to be productive. And let's not forget, eating is important to look after our basic health. I want to tell you about Y Food. It's a balanced, simple and wholesome ready to drink meal. Yes, meal. That means it does keep you full for about five hours, making sure you don't become unproductive or hangry. But also it's packed with 26 vitamins and minerals and a whole 33 grams of protein. They're not joking about when they say a meal. I've dropped their link in the description with a 10% discount code. Check it out. Let's head back to the show. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Scrubbed In Show. I hope you've all been keeping well. This week we've gone down under. We have with us Dr. Tom Kelly, who is a surgeon and the CEO and co-founder of Heidi. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today, Tom. How are you? Welcome to the show. Yeah, yeah, really good, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Um, uh, I think it's, it's like early for you guys, late for me, so... But everything's yeah. off the record. Like, you know, I, I won't remember this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's always fun when we get guests from across the world because you're trying to get the time zones exactly. sorted out and scheduled <laughs> to click on site. And like we said, it's like 40 degrees here in London and it's like Zero. an hour end of the spectrum exactly. for you. <laughs> uh, so you have done incredible things today. Surgical training, surgical extra, recently launched Heidi, um, which we'll talk about in a moment. But we want to kind of take it all the way right back to a young Tom who's kind of embarking on this journey. He wants to kind of grow up, you know, and pursue medicine and be a doctor. So start from the very beginning and kind of work us through to where you are now, Tom. Yeah, sure. So uh, so as a kid, I, I grew up uh, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne in Victoria, Australia. Um, I'd say like pretty normal upbringing. My, most of my family was uh, working class. So did like tradey type of jobs, you know, like refrigeration mechanics mm. or chefs or odd jobs here or there. And they um, always had an emphasis on education and, um, you know, I was lucky enough to be sent to good schools and, and all that kind of stuff. So had that kind mm. of bred into me. It was never pressured, like never felt like I had to succeed, but definitely felt like I absorbed kind of the uh, pain and suffering of, of my parents and broader family of like how hard it can be um, if you're trying to yeah. make your way in the world without, you know, formal education or degrees or a professional kind of role. So, yeah, that was kind of the backdrop. But I pretty much followed my nose through high school, was always very interested in mainly mathematics. So, you know, typical, typical uh, medico nerd, nerd type you know, like the biology, chemistry, physics, um, but a lot of maths. And then um, in Australia, there's slightly more emphasis on a postgraduate pathway into medicine. So that you can still do undergraduate, but most people don't. So I I went the postgraduate route, sort of decided to selfish, selfishly follow my interests in maths for a few years. Um, and yeah, jumped in, was doing all sorts of weird things like uh, computational mathematics, which was like, writing code but you don't actually write the code you just use a pen and a paper and a pencil uh-huh. and like write out algorithms and do proofs and all this weird stuff and about two years in i realized that i might end up as a kind of sad and lonely phd professor with working on some <laughs> esoteric problem that no one really knows what the hell it's useful for like i don't know modeling fluid in a cup or something like that was a, was a project oh, that it. was on offer so I realized pretty quickly that it was probably not what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, and then was mm. faced with kind of three options. One was the medical paths. The other two were like a computer science or engineering path. And then the third one would be, you know, investment banking or, or some other solace path. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so kind of investigated all three, liked the people that wanted to do medicine back to that. I think that childhood experience, although it wasn't super explicit in my mind at the time, I think mm. the kind of safety of being a doctor and that professional mm. element of like, you know, what's the worst case scenario from a doctor? Like I can always practice and, you know, it's, it's a good fallback, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so uh, for that reason, and also the problem solving human element service, um, and also just seemed really cool uh, for all of those reasons, decided mm. to mm. go down that path. And yeah, got in, got into medicine, uh, University of Melbourne, had a interesting experience 
um, founding a business, which I can talk about helping people get into medicine. And wow. that was like a bit of a, I guess, entrepreneurship boot camp. Like we went from hmm. tutoring maybe like sort of five students or 10 students uh, to by the end of med school, about 2000 students across Australia. Wow. Um, and so that was, and the, the three, the three founders was myself um, and the other two actually non-medical. So one was PhD mm. in chemistry and the other guy was for a corporate strategy. Um, his name's Waleed. He's actually one of the co-founders at Oscar. And he, between the three, three of us, like I sort of did product marketing and a bit of the technical mm. stuff. Waleed did the finances mm. and Scott was the CEO, great tutor, sort of the leader of the vision and the direction mm. of the company. And yeah, just learned a, learned a lot. I think that's where the seeds were sort of sown for Planted. future business interests. Um, but at the same time, still like loved, uh, particularly surgery, general surgery, vascular surgery. Yeah. So was always doing the typical clinician thing of like trying to do both and, you know, bending yourself to yeah. a crisp, trying to uh, manage mm. two things at once. And, um, <laughs> yeah, I still, I still like, I really loved, loved that human element, but I was finding as I was enjoying all the challenges of building the business as I got more and more experience as a doctor it was becoming more algorithmic and I was thinking about mm. sort of my impact in the world and you know like if if there's the number of people in the world on the y-axis and maybe my impact on the x-axis like even if I took a patient from near death to, to life again that's one person mm. whereas if I yeah. impacted mm. like a thousand people with a even five percent improvement in their lives that would be a big impact overall so mm. Mm. started thinking about yeah different projects softwares problems that existed in med and that's how kind of landed on oscar oscar and heidi and uh here today to talk to you guys yeah amazing amazing just before we forget i was going to touch on the first company you founded kind of with the entry for med students mm. you were with non-medics doing it how was that experience because i know medics tend to stick to medics the the network always most often is medics because you're in med school for such a long period of time mm how would you say that was an advantage disadvantage what advice would you give to other medics that perhaps are looking for co-founders mm. yeah so um yeah so i think <clears throat> so the i guess the good thing about coming from like that not not that typical medical back pre-medical background was that um i think it set me up for a really strong set of just sort of like raw problem solving skills it's a hard thing to explain mm in an exact way but I, I know i sort of have it um it's almost like if you're playing an rpg and there's like there's a trait like problem solving like doing maths makes you like a 99 on that trait and it's really useful for a <laughs> yeah. lot of things but it's hard to explain exactly what you're good at you're just sort of good at those problem solving i think it comes from i'm not sure what your experience was like but in medicine and pre-med a lot of the teaching is very didactic so it's sort of like the slides yeah. if you memorize the slides you get you'll get full marks but in maths they teach you a way like a way of solving a kind of type of problem and then you walk into the yeah. exam it's worth 70 to 80 percent of your mark and there'll be five problems and it's literally oh, wow. just a pencil and you have to like solve the problem and there's no algorithmic way to do it like it's not a simple way there's no way to to, to guarantee that you get full marks so it's a very different yeah. approach to the world um so anyway, that that experience was was really good foundation, I think, for mm. for all of the pre pre med entry exams yeah. and kind of mm. everything that mm. came next. Uh, in terms of partnering up with the non non medicos for starting a business, I think it's kind of like the same thing. Again, like mm. I think I, I think of things in in games. I don't know why it's just just the way my brain works. So, um, <laughs> are you a big gamer? <laughs> Not anymore, but I, I, yeah, I used to be. <laughs> um, oh, <fair> <laughs> Like, again, the, you can only get to a certain proficiency across different skills and there'll always be these big gaps in, um, like, understanding how to fund a business, as an example. Like, there are mm. all these mm. different mechanisms of funding and bonds and private equity and, like, all these things that exist mm. that uh, it, people just never get any exposure to. And, you know, you can try and figure it out, but, like, the depth you'll get to will always be so limited that you would never actually in a position to make good decisions. Um, so yeah. I think it's definitely powerful to partner with people that have very different perspectives yeah. and different skills to than yourself, mm -hmm. because you, you know, if you're partner, if you have an idea and you start working on it, 
the natural instinct is to partner with another med student, a friend, which is fine, yeah. of course, mm. if you're trying to add bandwidth and time and, you know, you have good relationship with them. But I think it's, again, back to that skill set, like you're kind of maxing the same traits, like you still have the same deficiencies yeah. in most cases. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'd suggest like just get work experience that I've met, I met these guys yeah. um, by doing tutoring and sort of, I think just kind of serendipitously met over email and other things. Mm. Um, so it's usually just, again, it's one of those things you just put it into the ether, like go to networking yeah. events or yeah. startup or hackathon types of things. And then eventually it'll be like two or three degrees of separation. Like somehow the world mm. will just help you find the people you need. So what I've always found. Yeah. <laughs> Whilst you were doing all of that, right? Did it ever feel like you were wasting time in the sense that as a medic, right? People are, you know, doing clinical research and get it doubling down on that aspect. And here you are dabbling outside of medicine whilst being on the medical degree. Did you ever think, oh, wait, what am I doing? Or were you always confident that, you know what, I want to have one foot mm. in that industry itself? Yeah, it's a good, good question. Again, it wasn't, I, I maybe it was a bit um, uh, hedonistic. Like I kind of just followed what I wanted to do rather than having mm. a clear plan definitely does feel that way i think a lot of doctors feel this kind of like unseen pressure to stay on the treadmill and function mm. in like take the path that you know every other doctor has yeah. taken before you yeah and it, yeah it does you do feel the pressure especially in like surgeon competitive areas where you know you have fellowships yeah. and placements and training programs all these things dependent on a lot of a lot of box ticking and doing research and other things yeah i do have to say like I, I worry that people don't know why they do what they do. They don't really think of it in a first principles way. They just, you yeah. know, they, they pick up a research project that may or may not have any significant meaning in the world and sort of decide to <laughs> decide to do it because they want the CV points. Um, mm. And again, like it depends on personality type. Like I'm the, my personality is geared towards that, like impact kind of mindset. Mm. Mm. Um, you know, if you're again back to this game analogy, like you got one life, there's there's the map, yeah. you gotta explore it and you know, gain as many skills and attributes yeah. as possible. Why would I spend a year doing something that's a waste of time? And then to to get to a training program that will make me feel sad. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, with, yeah. Yeah, so it, Com completely understand. Yeah. yeah. So look, it's like it definitely it's it definitely takes some uh like balls to, <laughs> to, yeah. to some, some um, confidence to try to like actually just make that decision and step outside of maybe the mm. norms. But I don't know. Yeah. I think you've got to sort of follow your heart, <laughs> follow, follow yeah. what you want yeah. to do. Um, and, and I have found like throughout, throughout my experiences, even like taking time off and other things, like I, I noticed that a lot of those unseen rules don't exist in the sense of like people worry that they mm. can't get jobs or they won't be able to ever find a mentor that would support them after leaving or they'll lose all their surgical skills or all those kinds of things yeah um, again depends on the person like some people really need to be engrossed in in mm. something to keep those skills um i think i'm lucky in a sense that like like i said that problem solving attributes really high so like i retain a lot and i I, when I mm. move away from something, I can just quickly jump back in and kind of turn that brain back on. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, maybe it's just a mixture of, I don't know, lucky, lucky uh, <laughs> abilities and, and like can kind of manage multiple things at once. Yeah, oh, definitely. Mm -hmm. So you get into med school, you start to dabble in kind of entrepreneurship, um, side hustles, and then you graduate and then embark on the surgical training career at what point did oscar kind of get into the picture was it were you practicing as a surgeon was this an idea you had for a while and thought you know what i'm going to be a clinician for a bit before i launch something tell us about that phase of your journey yeah so so i think so this is back in 2017 so it was my first year as a mm. as an intern um and i was in this kind of awkward position where where the that pre-medical business had grown a lot and my mm. two non-medical founders kind of wanted me to like go full time or like make a decision right oh, wow. but for me like i wasn't i wasn't really ready to make that that call and i didn't um it's selfish but i didn't feel like it was a 
big enough opportunity. Like I felt like I could mm-hmm. have a bigger impact as a clinician than, than maybe, you know, growing that business even more. Um, mm. So yeah, sort of did a transition plan, hired people in, handed over a lot of responsibilities. Uh, still mm. still have, have input to this day, but it's more in a sort of advisory capacity. Mm. Um, and was like pretty headstrong, like, great, I'm going to be a clinician, happy with that. So then worked worked through the next couple of years and in 20, like start of 2020, just before the COVID pandemic, started working in mm. some uh, rural rural areas and then COVID, COVID happened and it was, a, it was a good opportunity for me because I got really good exposure to the way that sort of low resource medicine functions. I'm sure um, mm. a lot of medics mm. had that, that kind of experience and yeah, it was just so many problems that, that appeared for me, they all largely surrounded around kind of like the systems that exist in the way that patients um, are taken into hospitals, how the history is gathered and how patient mm. doctors actually function at the point of care. So at the moment, mm. um, even senior clinicians that have a lot of experience, they still kind of operate in a very traditional way, like they'll, you know, gather the look at the triage note, look at the other information and then see the patient, take a history, examine them. Um, this mm. very kind of mm. manual process. And um, even in the UK, like compared to Australia, you guys are fairly ahead with things like um, like Babylon and a bunch of other companies that, yeah. that are trying to automate and improve that workflow. So yeah, figured like, you know, hadn't seen anything like that coming to Australia. didn't seem like there was much in the space. Um, thought that, could build like a really good patient intake, do history gathering and write a note for a doctor. That was a simple idea, but pretty quickly realized technically that you would have to map basically all of medicine into uh, sort of like a graph, like a medical knowledge graph, yeah. literally like a, mm. like a web with all the features. So symptoms that a patient could have the conditions they could get diagnosed with their risk factors and other things and how they all map and what's the weighting between them and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so sort of sat on that for a little bit, wasn't really sure, sort of, it just seemed like a brute force problem too big for me or even a team of people Mm. to actually, actually, uh, be able to do. And then, yeah, sort of like still relatively early in 2020, sort of had a somewhat of a light bulb type of moment where, um, was talking to some of the medical students that worked for that pre-med, uh, ed company phrases. And they were telling me that they just hated the way that they were preparing for OSCEs. Like because of COVID, mm. they couldn't do in-person groups. So they were doing like Zoom calls and someone would pretend to be the patient and someone would take the history and they were trying to find time to link up. And it just seemed like, mm. and, and I thought back to my own experience, it seemed like something that could be improved and it wasn't very standardized, right? Like, you know, basically as a med student i want to practice my history taking but then you have to play the patient so then half of the yeah. time is, is sort of wasted in, in a sense because because you don't get to practice for that half of the time um and in australia there are some pretty tough like hurdle exams that are um, pinned to oskies uh so yeah i thought okay uh what why don't we create like a way for patients to take a history just with mm. software so with like a very fancy chatbot that would be so good that they could they could suspend disbelief and pretend they were talking to a real person just for that that mm. ten minutes, and the reason that that was a good stepping stone product was that mm. it is a small version of that big medical knowledge graph. So every patient yeah. has maybe five to ten conditions that they could possibly have, and so to make that chatbot work really well, you only needed to map five to ten conditions for each patient, and then. You release it in the wild and students would just challenge it. So they would ask lots of questions. Yeah. They would ask you questions you hadn't thought of that were good questions. And and we could just go through and train those conditions based on all of that information we were getting. So you get sort of some free training from students in a way, but then they also get value mm. out of it for their exams and everyone's everyone happy. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's sort of set about building it out, convinced that the, uh, Scott and Waleed, the non-medical co-founders to... Uh, give me some resources mm. from within phrases to to build out like a prototype uh, built out mm-hmm. first sort of 20 or so patient cases and then yep. release them in like the final year of 2020 for exam time 
and yeah, like had had pretty good traction, nothing crazy, but at least in Australia, yeah. like a few thousand students, which is, you know, maybe oh, like wow. 10 to 20% of, of the um, mm. sort of graduating year would have used Oscar for that, that exam period. Uh, so it started to feel a bit more real. <laughs> and then mm, by the yeah. time advanced to like sort of middle of last year, we'd map, we'd built sort of almost 200 patient cases, um, covered Amazing. pretty much all of adult medicine. And we're at that precipice where we had that medical knowledge graph and it was working really well and hmm. sort of felt confident that given like the resources, like a seed round or something like that, we could actually yeah. turn that into a clinical product. Uh, and oh. so sort of decided, which you can get into, but decided that like this was a big enough opportunity to yeah. you know, pause training, um, kind of go after it like crazy pitching um story basically like, <laughs> yeah like after a long night of like cr- bad things happening and patients and like colleagues not rocking up i had to pitch oh, wow. in surgical scrubs that were like blood soaked and like it was just a disaster oh, wow. but somehow <laughs> like i think maybe from pity or the the whole uh the vibe you worked. it worked yeah, yeah. and uh no, but it was part of the show come on having blood on exactly your... <laughs> exactly yeah it's like yeah no like i swear this is not like it's not an act like actually there was a car accident yeah. <laughs> yeah. i was operating um anyway so yeah it basically raised money um went full-time sort of september october mm. last year uh hired a team and started building heidi and we're we're just launching now it's changed a little bit from that initial vision like um hmm. we we realized that selling into hospitals and everything else like it made if we're doing that patient intake made sense to also be able to actually send things back to the patient and do bookings and yeah. other things so it's become hmm. pretty much like a end-to-end primary care platform that has lots yeah. of ai and ml things sprinkled yeah. throughout to make doctors lives easier hopefully easier help hmm. them avoid uh making mistakes and and automating things yeah. that are boring for them yeah no definitely like amazing one of the stark things that you kind of mention again and again if you go on your website your stories is this the concept of missed diagnosis mm. and we as clinicians know how important that is you know delayed diagnosis waiting around um and i think that's quite noble and important what you're doing and i think medicine is starting to kind of introduce tech and software which probably should have done a long time ago but you know legacy systems and yeah. you know it's a bit difficult but i like that vision of you know to one day be in a situation where you don't have a misdiagnosis because you're stuck in a waiting room or you don't get the right answers to the right questions uh yeah well is that how you want to move forward as in reduce the, the misdiagnosis yeah. and equip doctors with the best yeah yeah so i think our our like impact as a company like why we exist is basically like the number of patients that we help get to the right management more quickly um Mm. whether that's because they have an incorrect diagnosis or takes longer to to Mm. get onto the right management plan i think that's the kind of like the key metric that that we want to focus on um but to do that you have to do more than just actually making suggestions or like making sure doctors consider the right investigations and management plans because Mm a lot mm. of these problems occur when patients don't engage in healthcare properly. They aren't followed up properly. Yeah. You know, your patient with iron deficiency anemia, you tell them you need to do your FBE. You need to go see this gastroenterologist. Mm. You need to get a colonoscopy and come see me in three months once this is all done. Yeah. And then mm. you kind of just hope that like the patient actually yeah. does those things. Um, yeah. And yeah, there were a few there were a few like standout patients from that country experience that really pushed me to like ruminate on the problem. Um, hmm. On, on that iron deficiency anemia, like there was a old kind of grumbly farmer that could just never get a GP hmm. appointment. Took him almost yeah. like a year to be seen. And oh, um, wow. look, I like, I think he's okay today, but he had like <laughs> this grumbly abdominal pain, very cancery symptoms, like losing weight, yeah. all, all the typical work B symptoms. But because there's no triage process or like nothing for, for him to engage in besides that GP visit and was a stoic yeah. kind of guy, not someone who was going to complain, he had a year delayed um, surgery and management and resection, all this kind of oh, stuff, wow. where if mm. if that GP had used Heidi, then he would have been managed within the week, you know? And so like... So how does yeah. that pathway work? So 
so this is an example and then how does Heidi kind of step in and reduce that what yeah that so flow? so rather than just calling the GP and saying hey can I have an appointment uh, that that there's two different paths so one would be that the GP would take bookings through Heidi so that that farmer would okay. jump on the clinic's website or an app um, and when they go to initiate the booking they'll pick their time if, if the doctor's booked out they'll we'll do a quick conversation with Heidi. So an intake process, mm. it's similar to the symptom checkers you would have played around with no doubt. Um, mm. But the, the goal is a little different. So with those symptom checkers, it's a little sort of like binary, like it's, they're trying to spit out a decision, like, you know, what's your diagnosis or where should you go next? Um, so we gather some history and then that, that set of history like can be flagged to the clinic. So basically that patient has like a red flag condition. We can also mm. flag it back to the patient as well. So we can say like, based on the information you've told us, you should like, you should really see urgent care. Like you should be seen in the next week, at least. Um, if that's not mm. your GP, try another GP or like attend ED. Um, in, but in the ideal scenario, it would be a, it would be a situation where exactly. that gets flagged like asynchronously to the clinic as a patient that really needs to be seen in an emergency slot, and then those booking and administrators would would find a time to fit them in. Um, yeah, that's the that's the kind of magic sauce, I guess, in that sort of one to, mm. one to two minute history taking as part yeah. of doing a booking or even after a booking. So if they book with a clinic, we send them a text and say do this intake. And it, help, it will just help streamline the process. So as a mm. clinician, mm. when you're about to see them, you know what the agenda is, like what they actually want from you in that visit, uh, what their symptoms are, but not only just their symptoms, like all of their past visits, their past medical history, their investigations, like everything that's happened for this patient that could be relevant to this visit. Um, okay. And so you can imagine scenarios where a patient comes in over like a two-year period and has a few kind of weird presentations that all point to hypothyroidism as an example. But as a clinician, yeah. like it's really hard to put those things together because um, it's like you see so many people, how are you possibly going to remember that that person had mm. been gaining weight and then they, they mentioned out of the blue that they were feeling a bit cold and then like, so it's hard to put it together. But for, for Heidi, mm. it's it's a computer. So they look at that patient yeah. and it's like algorithmic. They'll yeah. look at all of the previous presentations and say, hey, have you thought, maybe we should do a TFT, you know, uh, something like mm. that. What's, what's been the, um, the patient response to it? So I, I'll tell you the, the problem that I see currently. So in the UK, right, what's happening is with the whole COVID pandemic, there's a lot of clinicians obviously utilising the virtual uh, digital experience, right, seeing patients virtually. Now, there's a clear sort of um, cut down the middle where the, the older population are a bit disgruntled with having to use virtual digital systems. They're just not used to it, right? Mm. I see them in A&E a lot. They'll come in and I'll ask them what brings you to A&E and they'll be like, I'm just here to pick up my blood report that I did like three weeks ago. Yeah. And just like, well, what happened with the GP and stuff? Um, whilst the younger generation are very pro, it saves them time. They love it. They don't need to travel to the GP. They do it at work and so on and so forth. What's been your patient response like? Yeah, so so definitely right. Like, I don't think that every patient um, is useful for this. So this is like a decades-long journey. You know, when we're when we're yeah. uh, frail and old, I think we'll still be able to engage with digital solutions because we're absolutely we've been, we've been brought up <laughs> with it. Um, but interestingly, I think maybe not necessarily the intake part of it. So we always let patients choose what kind of visit that they would want and okay. even the intake yeah. like they don't absolutely have to do it so we want them to do it but it's not a must-have the part that pretty universally all patients love is that like access to their medical record being able to get things back to them so as Amazing. like simple example like that path report that can now be sent as a text message that's now living in Heidi it's like a little my chart that they have mm. all their patient info in um and that, that works because we connect with most of the main EMRs and other systems to, to connect that information back to the patient. Um, and for bookings, it's like a pretty, I think a pretty established thing for like online bookings and websites and things like that. So we found that even the most kind of commodity, unlikely people yeah. uh, like it when maybe they lose their script or their referral or, or whatever. Now they have an easy way to get it. Um, yeah, exactly. But I, I, I 100% agree. I actually think like it's a big kind of um, 
faux pas of a lot of telehealth companies out there. They spend a lot of time yeah. telling everyone that everything can be managed via telehealth. And like as a yeah, exactly. as a vascular surgeon, I can confidently say that you can't tell <laughs> if someone has a pulse yeah. or not by by telehealth, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, or like if they're you know are they cold or is it like you know uh, yeah. devascularized. So like I I think like I think it's what you really want to do is like be able to cogently stratify patients to the right kind of visit, um, rather yeah. than being kind of sort of a bit like brittle and dumb and, and sort of like everyone gets this video mm. link. Like, that doesn't make much sense. If someone has a red sword knee, there's nothing you can do yeah. but see that person in person because, you know, it could be yeah. septic arthritis, it could be a little bump, it could be a rash. Like it's pretty hard to tell unless you see the knee. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think kind of like the magic that's missing and especially like a lot of startups that have cropped up that don't really think of these problems deeply, it's really easy to yeah. stand up a telehealth solution but how different is it to like Google Meets or Zoom? Like not really that different. Yeah, you yeah. Know? Uh, no, the hard not. part is like trying to get all the orchestration right, get like point of care things that are useful for the doctors, like additive, mm-hmm. and then yeah, just kind of help patients get whatever is optimal for them. If that's in person, that's fine. Yeah. Um, maybe yeah. we can still rec- make recommendations to the, do- the doctor that's in person with them based on what Heidi yeah. sees in that record. Not necessarily. Yeah. The intake or, or anything that the patient didn't want to do um so yeah that's the yeah. idea but hard to achieve hard amazing. to achieve <laughs> amazing uh, yeah. definitely in in your in your journey right so you talked about how you've linked up the path systems and the the sort of the uh, the virtual systems that are out there within the healthcare um big system bigger system out there how challenging was that aspect because i can imagine a lot of red tape and from previous experience there's a lot of stakeholders to make sure that they're happy to get on board i don't know if you're allowed to talk about this but i know it's not all it's not all rosy in this field and a lot of startup entrepreneurs can be a bit naive when entering this field because it's so challenging it's not easy Um, can you tell us a bit about the challenges you faced here yeah 100 percent. so um yeah, so depending on the, the medical records or systems that you work with, they'll always have mm. have some price for entry. So they'll be taking some percentage of your revenues yeah. Um, yeah. for having access to any of their, their customers' data. Um, so there's that whole kind of commercial negotiation part of it. And then like putting the shoe on the other foot, like if I was them, every additional partner is someone that I now have to manage and make sure that my system... Yeah changes don't break any of my partner integrations so you also have to convince mm. them that what you're building is big enough and and worthy of of their attention uh, which is <laughs> yeah. yeah really difficult and uh, a lot of systems it's interesting so like i think it's getting better uh, with there are new standards that are sort of forcing most medical records to have like a standard system for like mm. you might have heard of snowmed or ICD-10 yeah. codes for diagnoses. Yeah. So there's kind of yeah. like a standard format for, for a lot of these things. But interestingly, mm. in Australia, there are a bunch of dominant players in general practice and they all have their own way of doing things that don't comply mm. with a lot yeah. of these standards. The I think like the day the days are numbered, like it's going to take a few years, but eventually that's not going to fly. Like it's just going to be forced that, that everything is coded with SNOMED. Mm. Um, yeah. I think it's basically like a pain and brute force problem. There's no, like, mm. it's basically like, okay, how many conditions <laughs> are in this medical record? Some poor soul has to map this to SNOMED and so, yeah, yeah, and do it manually. Yeah. Yeah. How does it work? So I remember looking at the website, there's like millions of cases, like every scenario imaginable. How does it actually work? I imagine you've got someone there sitting behind a computer screen that's typing it, you know, <laughs> making sure there's no typos in the <laughs> um so how does it actually work because i know a lot of people are thinking i get it but i don't get it like it's impossible right to have millions and thousands of cases how do, does that part of it work yeah yeah um sorry you're talking about oscar or on the heidi side on oscar oscar first yeah, and then yeah yeah how it kind of relates to heidi. yeah so uh it's quite quite interesting interesting stuff so there's yeah. um for, for those that are interested i'd suggest uh, watching some of Google's IO that's they like developer conferences and they talk about some of their natural language models because a lot of a lot of the R and D 
that comes out of the big tech firms ends up becoming like the gold standard way of doing things. Mm. So sort of like to take it back to first principles, like sort of traditional natural language processing stuff where, you know, you're, let's say you're, you're a, a airline and you want to create a chatbot that replies to you, to you for, for service inquiries, just simple things. The traditional way would be that someone sends a message. There's two things you try to figure out. One is like the intent of the message, which literally means that intent, like what is the person trying to get from me with this message? Mm. Um, what's that? What's the thing that they want from me? And then the other thing is the entities, which is like the topics of that. So for instance, like um, tell me about the weather. So the, the intent might be that you want to know about something and then the entity is the weather. And if you match those two mm. things, you then have a database that says, okay, if someone has this intent and this entity, reply with ah. like this this um, response, which might be like it is mm. and then insert temperature of the day or, or whatever. Um, yeah. So that's a kind of like very traditional way of doing it. In an application like Oscar, it gets you so far. So uh, we're, we're sort of flattered to have a few copycat products out there, which is which is always good. I think it shows. <laughs> I think it shows you on something good. Um, yeah. And they had the same problems I had sort of back in 2020 in like early testing, which is those systems start to really break when you have uh, words that are quite synonymous or have slight variations like chronic. Uh, alcoholic liver disease or alcohol withdrawal syndrome or like it starts to get really difficult yeah. to split hairs on like the really specific things and uh for, for oscar users you guys should try it out <laughs> everyone should try it out but yeah. it's you'll find that you have really low threshold for being like stuff this i'm talking to a robot i hate it yeah. <laughs> 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 like it's just a very low threshold so we were finding that even if we were accurate, like maybe 90% of the time, but one in 10, we were wrong. Students would just hate yeah. it, right? They just hate it because it just breaks mm. the flow. And the worst is when you reply incorrectly. So it's even worse than getting it wrong because we didn't know we were wrong. So we've now just replied like some sort of random message that doesn't oh, make any sense. So yeah. you've asked about their fever and they've said my toe that doesn't hurt. Something like that. And like, then you get messages yeah. like, are you confused? Or like, you know, <laughs> this kind of stuff. Because <laughs> yeah. the students think it's part of the game. And it's like, nope, we've just, we've made a, minute, made a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, that that's like the old school way of doing it and we there's yeah. lots of new models there's um you might have heard of uh there's open ai's like glp3 oh, yeah. which is this gigantic uh text model and all it does is predict what's the next character um seems like a kind of simple yeah. idea but if you think about it like if you train it on the whole internet and then you give it a paragraph and then you say what comes next it will look at all of the previous examples it's ever seen and then predict and start writing based mm. on based on what, yeah. what that context is. So yeah, so in the end, we, we, we use things that are more like that. So like pre-trained um, transformers and other types of models okay. that actually look at the whole statement, the whole statement as a whole. So the question you ask, like, um, you know, back to that, like, have you ever had withdrawals from alcohol? And then those, those systems are actually quite good at mapping whole sentences to both the intent mm. and the entity, but sometimes even just getting okay. rid of like the intent and entity entirely and just matching the whole statement to a, to a response. So eventually we started getting rid of like intent and entity and, and splitting hairs and just would have like the actual like kind of feature that, that, that you're asking about. So when you're asking about alcohol withdrawal, you're kind of asking about like, that alcohol patient having had like previous alcohol withdrawal and that that is like the feature mm. and any way of asking it no matter what the intent and entities are you want to respond with that kind of response about the that experience mm. um and i think that was like that was a big big watershed thing that helped helped us quite a lot because then mm. then you don't need to worry too much about having to like label literally every single example of anything and these systems get quite good even with a few examples of asking that question, like, do you ever have shakes or shivers if you don't have a drink in a day? Or, you know, mm. um, if you wake up in the morning, do you, do you feel an urge to drink? Like you start giving it a few yeah. diverse examples and then it'll get quite good at responding to new examples that don't match any of the ones in the data set. Um, yeah, so basically 
sort of brute force. Like we still had, you know, maybe like, I think last I checked, it was about 24,000 different uh, like statements that we could respond to. And then Hmm. uh, you, you do a mixture of like having some default responses or even like dynamic default responses. So default responses, but then you fill in information based on the patient's kind of demographics and other information to make it feel more real. And then hmm. for, for a case, there'll be a certain number of those statements that need to be written and crafted for that patient to exist. Yeah. Um, but it's still like quite, quite labor intensive, like to, to make them really okay. real. It's actually, it's like an yeah. art, you know, to create the person yeah. and embody them and, you know, write the, the gr- grammar in just the right way. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can imagine. Amazing. Yeah. That's quite incredible. Do you think, this kind of technology, this smart chatbots, is something that we'll see more in other industries as well, not just health. You know, yeah, I think um, where they get super, super smart. I don't know if it exists, but they can kind of pinpoint. Okay, this is what this individual wants, and kind of feed it back. Yeah, I think so. Like um, the reason I, I mentioned the Google I/O uh, sort of thing was there's a recent example. So one of the even newer models. I'm gonna get the name wrong. Uh, something with an L it's like Lati or Lati something something like that yeah. just google it so there yeah. was this google engineer that that got convinced that the model was sentient so there's, there's all these oh, transcripts wow. yeah. and stuff it's like a cra- really crazy story I, I'll, I'll I'll find the link and share with you guys you can maybe put it in the yeah, show yeah. notes um but yeah these these like language models are unreal like they're crazy they they're they're getting to the point I think it's lambda that was it lambda um yeah, they, they're getting to the point where I could see if you're a lot, like lonely and you've got nothing else to do. Like I could with that model, I could completely see someone getting absorbed just by creating oh, a relationship wow. with this chat. And the, <laughs> the crazy thing with that model is it remembers you. So it remembers all of the previous conversations and uses that as oh, context wow. for future conversations, which means that you get this like really like rich context and like starts to like remember the things that you asked it in previous statements all these it's really it starts yeah. to get creepy um, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a bit crazy <laughs> um and it's the whole um it's the like the turing test problem where it's like it starts to become hard to even work out like you know if, if they really are conscious or not or you know yeah. or yeah. are you um there's lots of examples of humans kind of sort of um doing that like transference where they they kind of like they impose the personality and everything else onto yeah. onto the system, but it's actually just rule based. Um, anyway, so the short answer yeah. is that I think I think these models are really powerful to to automate a lot of things that are very administrative. Mm. They still yeah. don't they don't do reasoning really well. So, mm-hmm. um, like Heidi in a US context, for example, one thing that we can mm. use a lot of those models we've built to do is take all of the previous things that have ever happened for that patient and then create a mm. list of possible recommendations for the doctor. Mm. Now they're not, they're not hundred percent accurate. So they'll, we can suggest like, Hey, we, we noticed this statement, like you, you said that this person has a microcytic anemia. We noticed there hasn't been an FB done in the last 12 months. Maybe, maybe that's something yeah. you should revisit or check. Yeah. Mm. Um, and create a list of all these actions. And then in a US setting, they have like all of this crazy coding and insurance is linked to the coding. So, you yeah. know, if we can recommend like gaps in the care or codes that are, they're eligible mm. for, it can help the doctor get better yeah, funding, definitely. but also make sure the patient's getting the right management. Um, yeah. So those kinds of things, it's extremely powerful. Like no matter how, yeah. how much time you as a person take, to look through the notes you will just never you will never do that nah. as well as a as a system like that because you can literally check Absolutely. everything in an instant and you can just never compete with that hmm. but the part where it's where the, i think there'll always be some human element up to the point of you know artificial general intelligence is um one like translating those recommendations into like an actual plan for the person in front of you because hmm. You know, maybe the reason that person hasn't had an FBA is because they're extremely terrified of blood tests and you need to use them yeah. as like, you know, um, aces in, in your hole. Like you only, you can only do like one blood test to give this person. They're so afraid of needles. Otherwise they'll leave you as a patient yeah, or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So there's, there's always going to be yeah. some gap, like the humanity, you should never be able to encode it in the model. And the other part of it is <clears throat> the there's a really like it comes down to kind of liability like who's responsible for the decisions that these systems yeah. make and 
unless unless your system is like really really closed and granular and doing one particular thing where it can just be trained on such a huge data set that like the mm. fda or tga or the european um <clears throat> medical bodies say okay like based on based on the data where you can make a like risk on a risk judgment that even though the error is this a human would be hmm. 10 times worse than this and you have so much data that you've proved to me that we can accept that error rate as long as we can send hmm. the patient yeah. and now we'll do hmm. like an automated retinal exam as an example like that that hmm. already exists or yeah. we'll do um like i can see a world where they do some procedures like endovascular procedures or other things that are robot assisted you can set the patient for things yeah. that can go wrong but you explain that a human would do this 10 times worse than the robot so that's why we use the yeah. robot you know um yeah. yeah but i do think there'll always be that human that will yeah. one uh, have the indemnity insurance <laughs> to yeah. uh, actually like take responsibility for translating those recommendations for the person in front of them and really like it should unlock some productivity for doctors in the sense that like you don't have to yeah. fear that you've missed things or that you just don't have enough time to check everything like we should have a system that at that point of care is supporting us to do a great job um that, no. like if we succeed with Heidi that's that's what we were built uh no definitely yeah but it but like obviously it's hard to get right and you know no. it's it's a challenge to get all just just the right amount of recommendations so it's not boring it's not like the top of the ecg that everyone ignores you know this kind yeah. of stuff yeah. <laughs> no, i can definitely see it working as in like it's it's an aid it's an adjunct not a replacement yeah. and it flags things you can miss and and i've been in those situ situations where you're seeing 30 40 patients in outpatient clinic and you can barely remember and all it takes is a prompt to kind of unlock that extra bandwidth and be like, hey, do you know what? I missed this. Let me go down yeah. this angle. So yeah, definitely as an adjunct mm. aid, it's it's Agreed. much needed. Yeah, sort of, I find it very, very interesting. Yeah. Sort of like the, the Jarvis for the Iron Man fans out there. Like yeah. you want that, just that system <laughs> that like is, you know, powering, powering, uh, super powering all of your ideas and your plans. It's, and, it's like a cheat code. Yeah. It's, it's like a cheat yeah. code to your consultant yeah. and your, and no, your old, physician. No right? Ultron <laughs> though. Ultron is unsupervised, you know. Java yeah, Java yeah, is yeah. always supervised. <laughs> can you, <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? But but it's it's amazing. Like um at the same time I think someone like me would I become very, very reliant on Heidi and be like, Do you know what? I'm not gonna study anymore, I'm not gonna learn anything new. I'm just gonna rely on my buddy Heidi to prompt me. Yeah. I'm gonna be a grand run and say, you know, this this rare case was diagnosed by me. Um, to, to to all the doctors now listening and the juniors that are coming up through the ranks, right? We're seeing a lot of technology come out now in the health tech industry, right? Lots of doctors are now utilizing it. How important is it for the, let's just say the guys who are not so keen on tech to actually start rethinking that mm. with what's happened, with, with what's going to happen in the future? Because um, yeah. I remember jo Josh Case from Australia, actually, oh, yeah. uh, if you know him, he, yeah, was, yeah. He, was, he said this one line, he said, technology will never replace doctors, but doctors who can't use technology will be replaced by doctors who can. Mm. Um, but what's your thoughts on people who are like, ah, oh, no tech, tech, we can leave behind. We don't need to start learning yeah. how to use these things. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, so for me back to like, try to like strip it back to like, what's your objective, right? So if your objective as a mm. doctor is to like, I don't care about this tech stuff. I just want to serve my patients, <laughs> you know, um, focus on the person in front of me, then I would ask like, what is the actual purpose of you as a doctor? Like, are you trying to deliver the best patient care? Are you just being stubborn and difficult and refusing to use tools because I don't know, you <laughs> want to show how smart you are without them perhaps. Um, it's, <laughs> if, if you care about patient care, then it's going to become absolutely undeniable that doctors that use technology and software well yeah. are going to be far superior to those that don't. And so I kind of agree with Josh's sentiment, like, not not only left behind but actually probably like borderline malpractice if if you can't utilize yeah. the tools properly because if True. in a scenario where heidi heidi's you know making you not miss like i don't know let's say let's say it makes you twice as bad as good at investigating and managing chronic conditions and avoiding common missed mm. conditions like the masquerade conditions are very commonly missed mm. then it starts to become kind of hard to justify why you aren't using something like yeah. Heidi in your day-to-day -day practice in a scenario where you have exactly. made a mistake. 
Um, so I know obviously it's easy for me to say, you know, I've got a product. What else am I going to say? Yeah. But I do think, <laughs> yeah, I do think to do your patients justice, you should at least spend enough time to be competent, understand how, what the future is likely to look like by the time you're practicing. I do yeah. think, um, although health is slow to move, there's going, there's going to be a lot of changes. And I do think some of the changes that COVID pushed forward are here to stay. So this kind of like hybrid, you know, async chat, text, virtual, yeah. in-person s- scenario is definitely going to stay because governments and decision makers have realized that it's probably more cost effective. So as soon as that happens, yeah. it's never going to be unwound. <laughs> that is game over. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, GG. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah so look, I, I definitely think... Uh, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to start a company, but just keep your eye on interesting tools. It'll only make you better, free you up to, to do your kind of honorable pursuit and while Heidi writes your notes for you or something like that. There's, there's, oh, yeah. Yeah. I would love that. Do you know how much time is wasted each year? Just, just scribbling notes. Just scribbling notes. Trying to grow things. <laughs> exactly. like if it, if it, let's, I, don't know, I don't even want to go on a rant right now. But I just remembered something you said, Tom, and you said something about the copycats, right? Mm. Um, so what would you, so a lot of the time we have a lot of people or clinical entrepreneurs that have started on their journey. One, they don't want to share the idea in fear someone's going to copy it or they, they launched the idea in a few months later, someone else comes and copies and they've kind of copied word for word and changed a few colors, right? And they get a bit disgruntled and frustrated and, you know, they're cursing them. You've obviously had a similar experience. What advice would you give to people? Because we're of the opinion kind of, you can outwork someone, outsmart them. Don't be afraid of copycats. And as long as you stick to your mission and your vision, you'd be all right. But what would you say? It's quite interesting because you flagged it. As yeah. Well. So, yeah. So obviously there's all of the uh, Hallmark card platitudes, you know, like it's the greatest flattery, all these things. I actually do think, <laughs> I, I think that ideas are really common and execution is yeah. really rare. Um, like I just, you wouldn't believe how many how many crap health products there are. Everything everything in health starts as someone's like kind of a take home project, and hmm. you can really see the difference between people who like really know how to execute, have like good design sense, good user experience, have hmm. built businesses. It always it always comes through. Whether or not that product okay. wins in health is interesting because there's a lot of kind of inside baseball type of stuff that means that certain platforms get greenlit and other things but but ignoring ignoring that i I think it's a mistake early on to worry too much about competition because you you basically have nothing like it Mm -hmm. it, um, even when you have a have a product like having a copycat is great because you can see the features that they're building and arguably if they're building faster and something better then you need to take a look in the mirror because you had it you had that time advantage well, why, like, mm. what's holding you back? Like, is your team going too slow? You're not working hard enough? Like, there's something mm. something wrong um, because you should should have that time advantage. And <clears throat> I think I think it's good. It's like a free free market, right? And you try and try yeah. and push people, push companies to mm. deliver better products for, for everyone. The only, the only caveat I would say is if you're doing something that is really novel and where there's like an underlying discovery or set of... Mm like it's beyond an idea, like it's an actual process or something that you've solved that just absolutely yeah. unlocks um, like a whole whole product category or, or a way yeah. of doing something mm. that would not be possible otherwise. Like there's a company called Remedy Robotics, uh, founded by a guy okay. called David Bell, who's an Australian surgeon and it's a robotics endovascular company. I was speaking to him today, so it's front of mind. And he he patented a way of really interesting like basically the catheter tips have this unique way of being able to Mm. for computer vision systems to locate the direction of the tip in three-dimensional space based on like markings and all these other things they do with the catheter Mm. um now that is like really yeah you know it's a like it's not it's like an engineered thing that is unique and novel yeah it deserves to be patented so those things fine protect it but if it's like a software idea Patents are always a terrible idea. Patents, literally, you write out in in plain language how to build what you have built. 
And then if someone copies it, there's basically no way to work out if they've copied it because with software, you can yeah. build it in like a close to, but not exactly the same way so that you avoid the, yeah. the fat inside of it. Yeah. <laughs> and how on earth, like with your no money startup scenario, are you ever going to litigate it? Like, what are you going to do? Like do, do discovery and yes. look at their code base and yeah. I, you've well and truly yeah. run out of money at that point. So I think, no, I think just focus on the product. Best product should always been, you should mm. be ruthlessly like focused on making something that's better that pay that yeah. your users just love because yeah. there mm. aren't that many examples of competition where the inferior product won. there's there's a few but yeah there's mo- many more examples of the better product the winning. best product wins saying that talking about money obviously you fundraised congratulations on that Tell us about that journey. I know you, you pitched in, in, in bloody scrubbing. I, I have a feeling that did the trick. <laughs> that. Uh, the authenticity and credibility and the storytelling came through. But um, a, a bunch of questions we get. Well, you can imagine we get a bunch of questions and we not always have the right answers because yeah. they think we're, we're geniuses and sweet so many people. Tell us about the, the fundraising experience. Um, but when is the right time to fundraise? Because I know a lot of... The, the problem is there's a lot of clinicians senior who have a lot of money in the bank from their career and they're kind of mm. bootstrapping it yeah and then they're getting told don't risk your own money go out and seek investment and it's the question of too early give too much too late not get anything type of thing so kind of mm. your thoughts on that yeah so um trying to think through the different aspects of it so yeah i mean in terms of timing um it's hard to give it a kind of broad like sort of advice that suits everyone. But the, I yeah. think the, the, the things that you get with venture backing, there are a few things. So one thing is that it does come with publicity and interest mm. and intrigue. And the main thing that none of that matters because it's all vanity stuff. The thing that really helps you with is is hiring great people. Um, mm. As long as you've got a, like a good mission and you still you still have to convince them that, that you know, it's a great it's a great <laughs> thing to work on. But I do think, like if I think of our team, at least half would probably never have given us a chance unless unless we'd come from Blackbird, which is one of the better f- firms in Australia. Um, mm-hmm. Like I know that some people sort of exclusively look for Blackbird companies. They've got a good track record. Oh, wow. mm. so, so there's that aspect. So if you're looking to grow a team, it's very helpful. Um, the other thing that it comes with is usually some... Uh, again depends on the venture firm but if it's a good one there'll be some senior corporate like sort of financial (laughs) operator previous founders that would now be giving you advice and always hustling you Mm. to go faster which i like i think is a good good forcing function if you're really ready to be 100 percent committed like it's no longer like a garage project right like this is this is the big leagues you now have yeah like you know lps and others who are expecting you to execute and grow and mm. really you you get onto a path where there's kind of three outcomes for fee back companies there's acquisition uh ipo yep. or death and <laughs> not much not much in between yeah. like may, maybe yeah. maybe chuck merges all or nothing there yeah, merges yeah. merges and acquisition fit in the same one but it, it's pretty yeah. and it makes sense because as like an asset class like if you guys were putting your money in your you want you want these like outsized bets right you want you want like a one a thousand x return um and you want Mm. you want the companies to take big risks rather than sort of middle out to a small business because it's just not not the game um yeah so they're the kind of things that come come with venture also comes with Mm. like the governance board of directors creating financial um, reporting and all these things. So it is, it becomes more formal. It's less ad hoc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's the, the more technical part. I think in terms of like actually going out and raising, you want to have, if you're, again, for most clinicians, I think they get past the idea point. So you want to have built something. I think you can, like, you mm. can definitely raise money just on an idea, but at that even mm. so for pre-seed which is just idea seed which is usually like a little bit of a product or a little bit of something beyond just the idea really they're betting on the people um mm. and the story the story you tell is important 
but it but it's more like a way to shed the light on the person and like the way you think of problems like in, in raising money from blackbird like that was the part that we they went really deep with us like to be honest like we had oscar but like heidi was like i said fairly loosely formed like we didn't have yeah the the killer product um but what mm. what they were betting on was that like the pedigree of of me and the lead and like that previous business experience and everything else and the team we we're starting to build like all these aspects sort of gave positive signal and then you want to try, you want to find people who believe in you to figure out the path forward because no matter what you're saying in that room it's unlikely that you'll you'll end up exactly where you, you say you'll end up in you know yeah. the next yeah absolutely so 18 24 months so yeah look for look story the people um if if you're like often uh health is weird like there are the funders out in health i don't know just act very odd right? a lot of the people <laughs> that i spoke to asked for like financial plans and like modeling and all this stuff and oh, wow. like i'm happy yeah. i'm happy to it's not it's not about the the model it's more just why is that what you want to know when I literally yeah. said in the pitch that we're not sure what the product is yet, but we have a medical knowledge. <laughs> graph. Like, you know, it's lies. Yeah. Like you're asking for lies and I will give you lies, but it is lies. Yeah. Like, you know, like, yeah. like what else am I going to do? I can chart like a bumpy hockey stick or like, or, you know, perfect <laughs> hockey stick. What would you like? We've been in that situation where someone's asked us, what's your 10 year financial model? And we're like, we're just gonna pick numbers out of the sky if you ask us exactly. that. Yeah. You know it. Yeah, and it's and it, it, I think it's overrepresented in, in health, especially at early stage. I think because yeah, um, as doctors, a lot of the the companies that get founded by doctors are, are usually by specialists who have a yeah. really specific yeah. product or tool or device or instrument they want to build, and then usually they get stuck in some sort of like R and D university disaster where yeah. they'll never ever make money. It'll never become a like like everyone <laughs> yeah. in those it's so sad though. yeah like we've like yeah. We met people like everyone that, yeah. in those bodies will tell you that they have lots of experience and that they're clinical entrepreneur experts and advisors but then if you really dig into it like usually they've never founded a company and they've like barely ever had any success stories so i just yeah my my caution would be that i would chart your own path be careful of yeah fake advisors that are grifters there are a lot yeah. of them um in health and make a whole business out of being a startup advisory and charging lots of fees um it's actually it's not that complicated you can figure most things out yourself i think mm. uh yeah and the fundraising Absolutely. part will always be this the story of you as a person why this is yeah your life's work the best idea for you to work on why will you yeah. succeed compared to the, yeah the hundreds of others that probably have the same idea as you same idea yeah no definitely yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Tom, so after all of that, after like, it's been one hour and two minutes now, <laughs> talking about Heidi, I can see the smile on your face. It fills you with joy, despite you also telling me about all the problems you face. I just want to finish on this point in particular. Tell us a little bit about, so in the health space, right? You've got a lot of disgruntled people who feel trapped, who feel like they've not got a way out. There is the other side of the spectrum, just to mention, there are people who are also happy as surgeons yeah. and medics and doctors, but there is that cohort who do feel like, ah, oh, damn, I'm not happy. Mm. Um, and they feel trapped. Now, talking to you, you're full of joy right now, despite the challenges of entrepreneurship. Tell us what it is like though. How do you feel having now left surgery dived straight into a venture-backed company now and you're really just taking this head on now how do you feel i feel some mixture of like elation and terror it's like a small like roller coaster <laughs> day by day you know um mm. uh i think i think the thing that's kind of underrated is that there is like this kind of like deep level of like i don't know you feel just very proud of the team and this Mm, and yeah. the the people that you support um which again adds to the terror because obviously if you don't succeed then they lose their jobs but, <laughs> yeah. um but i do think there's there's something kind of tragic about medicine which is that whole rotation and the way you work means that you it's always it's always like deep but fleeting relationships with your colleagues um, yeah you sort of yeah. like you you have these intense three to six months <clears throat> working and then you just 
lose lose them right like you they'll go work somewhere else and you might not see them ever again um you try to but it's just like never lines up (laughs) um so i think i think like that aspect of building a business is the part that's under underrepresented back to that little like imagine like a little sims town or something and like there's the you know the miner mining ore and someone building buildings and someone growing Mm. corn like there's something that just feels very productive about building a business and employing people and like you know those people are contributing to that mission and and building things that people Mm. will use and that all of that feels really productive in a way that sometimes medicine feels almost sounds like a silly analogy but it almost feels like a car wash in a way like you're a service Mm. so it's like the the patients come in and they're no longer farming their corn or building their buildings and so you fix them and then they go and be productive and you're sort of no matter how good of a doctor you are you're still sort of in a service role like no matter how much you and and i think for the builders out there that's where there's that cognitive dissonance like you want to build stuff you want to make stuff you want to create something for yourself and but then day to day it's like you sort of do that but then especially as you get more senior it's more like a service it's like oh yeah i've seen this mercedes before i know exactly what to do or like you know i've seen this i've seen this appendicitis i've seen this before i know exactly how this is gonna go yeah um and obviously there are some interesting quagmires and things mixed in but there are there is a lot of formulaic things that start to creep in Yeah. yeah so yeah for the builders out there there's there's lots of uh, opportunities to to work as a doctor i think the like don't get too disheartened by the pain of junior doctor training and all this kind of stuff it's <laughs> it's really rough like there's no doubt but most mm. like most of my friends and others and people ahead of me like it does get better once you're sort of out the other yeah. side and yeah. there's sort of two paths you can go my path you know sort of jump in early um and I, like I said I've never I think it's easy to go back to training there's always junior doctors yeah. they always need cogs in the machine mm. um yeah but but you could also do it later on so if you have that that instinct or intuition but like you know you probably want to be building something or contributing to a company or on a medical advisory board or uh, in some sort of research capacity or whatever it is then like keep that inside and then once you're trained yeah you know that's the time to now use your expertise and support a company building something interesting yeah. or um you know sort of uh live those fan- fantasy fantasies that, that you've had the whole way through uh yeah and, and don't lose lose faith like i think although mm. although you're a car wash like you're probably the most important car wash in in humanity so the best the most important yeah, service yeah. um so you know you are doing good every day and helping helping people in a like a deeply personal yeah. way that you won't definitely won't get in a business setting um but the what you do get in a business set, setting is like lifelong friends you're in in the, yeah. the the kind of uh business war zone with the same people every day the people <laughs> you chose for your for your uh battalion and uh you, you yeah. know you train them and and you go to war together and that part of it is something that you just never quite get with medicine get it's like a right. kind of rotating yeah. rotating group of soldiers <laughs> yeah yeah no definitely <laughs> completely understand and resonate with that as well thank you tom ever so much no we, we've discussed a lot we went off topic but i think it was good fun to kind of find find out who you are as an individual kind of see your passion with what you're trying to build with heidi um no, I'm glad you launched Heidi just before this happened because we got rescheduled. I'm glad you could talk about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, well. perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, thank you once again, and thank you to our listeners. Uh, we will see you all next week. Thanks, guys.